Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, it is our goal each and every week. Uh, So I welcome all of you listeners, uh, no matter uh, when you happen to be listening live or on the archives. And uh, we we do have a uh, brand new guest today. Um, in fact, I believe this is his first podcast, and I know it's going to be a, a wonderful show, and it's um, uh esteemed guest from uh, South Carolina. So before I introduce him formally, I want to say good morning to Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, and uh, good morning to you, and uh, thank you, Delilah, for all that you do in terms of your work with me, and I couldn't do this without you. Oh, I bet you could. <laughs> Not Good, well. morning. <laughs> Good morning. You you know how to handle things. You've been you're an old pro. You've been doing this for over five years, and uh, you've done a great job. We've had some extremely good guests, and today is is no exception. And uh, I'm very proud to say that I've known him for gosh quite a while. Actually, mm-hmm. um, we met first. I met him on the search for Alice Donovan and if I, I recall correctly I think he said that was like his first duty when he when he uh got here so let's wow. um let's get into all of the wonderful things he's done for Horry County Police Department and um get on with the show absolutely well um I'm I'm very glad to to have him there because it it is my second home and will be my permanent home in the future. So it's very good to have these type of collaborations. Um, Lieutenant Peter Sestere is um, is employed as a law enforcement individual in the state of South Carolina and is the commanding officer of the Crime Scene Investigation Unit and the property and evidence section in Horry County. Um, and um, be, before that, he was um, he, uh, he worked for many, many years in, in the New York City um, area and um, was the recipient of um, many awards. Um, and I was reading, it was very interesting. He, he was uh, twice awarded the highest uh, honor that can be bestowed upon a, the, a police officer, the NYPD Medal of Honor, and the New York Yankees Medal of Honor, Medal of Valor, rather. So I'm not exactly sure, but maybe some of our listeners from New England would be interested in that before we get into Horry County. But I want to say, Peter, thank you, thank you so much for being on our show uh, and being part of our radio family. And it was a pleasure to meet you at the Q Center conference and uh, hope this is part of a very um, collaboration. So welcome to our show. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Delilah. It's an absolute pleasure. I I cannot thank you enough for inviting me to be on here. And um, 
I, I've listened to both of your shows for for uh, a number of years, and you know, as you know, I'm I'm intimately involved, and my passion is in law enforcement and just trying to see justice for people. Well, I think that's what we are we are all about here, and we we do things in our own way to help crime victims. And I could just very much tell that you were you were advocates for 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 crime victim families and for missing families from how you presented your presentation. And I, I so respect that being a homicide survivor times thirty six years this month. So. Um, why don't we begin um, a little bit by just giving giving some of your your, your background, other than um, what what I did, and maybe talk a little bit about the contrast between what you might have done in New York and what you're doing in Horry County right now, because it could be there. It is very different in some ways, isn't it? it? It is. It's quite different. Both areas, you know, people think policing is the same everywhere, and it, and it is so vastly different depending upon the geographical area that you're working in. Um, I started out in 1981 in New York City in the New York City Housing Police Department. Um, I, I worked there for, for a number of years, rose up through the ranks from, from a police officer to investigator to detective to, to sergeant to detective sergeant. Um, merged into NYPD, um, eventually merged both the transit police and the housing police into one major department, you know, obviously the, the NYPD. And um, so I, I've worked everything from, you know, from a simple, you know, my cat stuck in a tree to, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to a multiple homicide situation, multiple victims. And, and um, I, I've had, the pleasure or unfortunate pleasure of, of having to, you know, face people in, in their worst, worst possible times in their lives, um, families and, and, and victims and, and, you know, and, and victims is not just the person who, who is injured or deceased or missing. Victims include the families and everybody who's had a personal relationship with with that person. I, I, I retired from New York City, and you had mentioned earlier, I am the recipient of the um, uh, New York City Medal of Honor. Um, I, I was extremely um, um, pleased to, to be able to receive that. I had been shot in the line of duty several times, and um, so as a result of that, I was, I was awarded the um, Medal of Honor and, and the New York Yankees Medal of Valor. Uh, besides countless other awards and, and, and so forth that I received from them. After retiring, I moved to South Carolina, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do something else, and you know, I'm going to get into another line of work. And everything I tried to do, I, I, I became a teacher in the school district here. I, I taught in the public schools for about a little over a year, um, recalled back up to New York City following 9-11 to, to help in the in the recovery aftermath of, of that horrible tragedy. Um, oh, wow. And then I realized, uh, you know, I needed to get back into what I, what I felt I, my purpose in life was, and that was to, to, you know, to provide a service to people that, you know, in, that are faced with horrible tragedies. And, 
and I was fortunate enough that the Horry County Police Department was looking for someone in their crime scene section. I, I applied for it. They um, offered me a job as the commanding officer of, of crime scene for the county police here, and I hit the ground running, and it, it, has, it has truly been a, an, an overwhelming experience for me here. Um, I, I absolutely love what I do and, and the people I do it for. Well, it, it it sounds as if you do. And, you know, there are just those people, and I think I'm probably going to be one of those people as well when I retire from state government, that you don't ever really retire. You just continue doing what you're doing and maybe maybe not get as, get as much money or, or something. You, it kind of goes into a permutation of what you did do. When, when you taught, were you teaching um, law enforcement classes or – no, actually, I, I taught in um, in Myrtle Beach High School, and um, yeah. I, I started out as a substitute teacher. Um, and, and I and through the course of the school year, obviously things happen with teachers. Somebody becomes pregnant, needs to take maternity leave or whatever. So I would right. take over class as as what was called a long term sub, and um, so I really had a. a, a a terrific opportunity to come face to face with, you know, with some of the kids who I say kids, uh, um, ninth grade uh, through 12th grade. And, and I really felt like I made a difference in their lives. Um, obviously they wanted to hear the police stories. I wanted to make an impact on them. And, uh, and it's neat because I still, to this day, I run into to students that I had some, you know, 15, 16 years ago when I first came here, and they recognize me right away, and and I get to hear all of the good stories of of how their, you know, what their lives have turned out to be, and in fact, one of the girls that was a student of mine now works for the police department here as our public information officer, so that's really really? a a blessing to see somebody do so well. That that is that is a wonderful uh, wonderful story, and I'm I'm sure that it's it's very inspiring to people. Um, one of my goals is I would love to to be able to interview um, um, someone from law enforcement that works in the schools every day because I think that would be very insightful. So that that is one of my goals as well. So I'm I'm so glad that you are able to make your entree and and, and work with kids. And but you are clearly doing what you love and um it, it it really does it really does show um with regard to um just just to kind of bring people up to date the, this kind of uh, this um season um is uh tourist season and um particularly for places like in uh the carolinas and in florida and there's a whole influx of of people there and people who don't live in a tourist area maybe are not cognizant of that and the challenges. And so before we get into the uh, forensics aspect of the show and whatnot, I just wanted to touch on that and maybe you could make some comments with regard to what the situation is or some, some advice you might have for tourists that are thinking of coming to, to Horry County. Sure. I, um, Having come from New York, New York City is the is is the mecca for tourism. But being a police officer there, I never realized just how how much the tourism affected 
um, New York City, and, and mainly in, in, in the Manhattan area, Midtown Manhattan and so forth. When I came down here, which actually brought me down here for years before, I had vacationed here during spring breaks and, and um, Easter recess and winter recess from the schools, you know, when my, when my children were in the schools up in New York. And we came down here, and, and, and even though I was a cop, I was like every other tourist. I was... I was here to have a, a good vacation. I was here to have fun. And, you know, when you're out of your element, you let your guard down. And and coming to Myrtle Beach now and, and policing, I see the whole other side to, to tourism. Myrtle Beach is a huge influx of tourism. Um, beginning around the month of May, we start off with a with a couple of uh, motorcycle rallies, the Harley Davidson rally around the middle of May, and towards the Memorial Day weekend, we have the Atlantic Beach um, bike festival and rally, and that's and that's a jump start to our season. We get a, a quite a number of of people coming in on Harley Davidsons, and then you get about a two day break, and then we get a huge influx of people coming in um, on you know more of the popular. Uh, motorcycles that the kids and so forth ride these days, and so it, it, it's quite different to see how things change in such a short period of time. You go from no traffic on, you know, on some of the roadways to all of a sudden gridlock of traffic because of of all of the tourists and so forth coming in, and then following the bike fest, we get all the families that come here, and like everyone else. You leave your home, you go on vacation, you're there to have a great time, uh, and you kind of, you're at ease. You know, you're away from the work element, you're away from the day-to-day tasks and troubles and chores and problems in life. You let your guard down, you want to have a good time, and that's when people can become vulnerable. And and I guess the, the big thing that I want to stress is that crime happens everywhere. It doesn't matter if you live in you know, behind the pearly white gates in some beautiful neighborhood, or if you live in uh, uh, in a trailer out on some dirt road, or if you live in a housing project in the middle of some development, there's going to be some level of crime everywhere. And it's just good sense to, to be able to keep somewhat of a street smarts about you, simple things like people have their cars broken into all the time. And it's usually because they left the door unlocked. Simple things like lock the doors, don't leave things visible that people are going to see. Don't walk around with your, with your head down in your phone. We live in the technology age and people walk around. That phone has been considered your most personal and private um, information and storage database. And yet you walk around and you see people with their face in their phone constantly uh, they're not paying attention to their surroundings, and that's when you can become a victim of, of anything. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think that's good practical advice, and I think people should just be prepared for the fact that they're going to be sitting in traffic a lot, and or um, so you, you just you have you have to be prepared for that if you're coming for the first time and and deal with it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, Peter, when do you you feel in Horry County or or anywhere, really, what do you feel is the number one issue that officers are dealing with? Um, You know, I'm 
quite aware of what we deal with here. But overall, what what is really pushing your buttons as far as being a police officer? <laughs> well, I, obviously, you know, times have changed. Um, there are a lot more people in need of assistance and services. And life's events push people to, to the edge sometimes. I mean, I, I've, I've seen people go in and shoplift in a store because they're trying to get food to feed their family. I, I've seen, uh, you know, at the same time, I've seen people go in and shoplift just because the, the item looks neat. I, I've seen, you know, so many times where um, people just, they don't pay enough cognitive attention to what's going on around them that they fall prey to to those that are out there. I mean, there's always going to be an element out out there somewhere that's looking to um, get quick money. You know, maybe it's for a drug addiction, maybe it's for a, a you know a, a financial situation, something of that nature. But drugs has taken a huge increase in, in our country everywhere. I mean, we're seeing a, a tremendous influx in in um, heroin incidents and and um, a, a lot more dangerous drugs and. It, it, we saw the same things back in the 80s, and then it kind of, kind of quieted down for a while, with, um, you know, with, with heroin and things of that nature. And all of a sudden, it's making a popular return again. And and those type of drugs are, are just, they're they're so mind altering and so hurtful to people, and so hard to to beat the addiction of it that it's it's causing a, a huge influx in crime. Yeah, we we have the same here, just epidemic levels of deaths here where the medical examiners are inundated and they've been lo- potentially losing their accreditation here because we're so backlogged with young young teen deaths because of this fear. It's very, very concerning. So I'm sure it's 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 very similar there, and I don't know I don't know what the answer is. Um, it's cheap, it's deadly, and so we're we go from you know traffic to to uh, drug addiction and all of that. But th- there are so many challenges for law enforcement, and I don't know except to just try to deal with it on a day to day basis. I mean I know you have different programs that you institute and new protocols that you try to enact when there there are certain things that I saw you know traffic fatalities you have a uh, with with all the different law enforcement factions working together because people aren't paying attention when they're driving down 17 or wherever so um I don't know but uh, it's it's just uh people have to um like I say be cognizant in everything that they're doing um but with that, in as a backdrop, I wanted to kind of get into, um, you know, with your permission, the the fact that people still are grabbing onto the idea with all of the um, the crime shows that we have on TV that you know everything is solved in an hour, and that you know oh DNA results will will be back in two days, 
and lab results are, you know, they'll put your, your case at the top of the pile. And this really affects families and their, their expectations. So can, can we start to get into that aspect and to, let, and to let people know what are the true realities that you're facing, whether you want to use a case example to begin with, a realistic picture here, Peter. Okay. Uh, obviously, um, most people, when they interact with law enforcement, they don't know what the true dynamics are behind law enforcement. For, for most people, and, and I'll speak primarily on the first time you've had any type of encounter with law enforcement, um, it's, it's usually they view the officer as that's their cop. Uh, um, you know, that, that cop's going to handle their, their complaint for them, and, and, you know, and if something was stolen, you know, he or she is going to get it back or they're going to investigate this. And reality is, just by sheer numbers, um, the, the amount of police officers versus the, the public and the complaints that come in, um, each officer has has a huge undertaking between cases that they're investigating to be able to um, juggle the number of, of, of case reports and crimes that they're investigating and you know keep up with the with the families of, of or the victims and keep them informed um, at the same time we there are certain details to cases that we don't want to release and, and really shouldn't release because it could potentially compromise the case and so people sometimes get frustrated that the, the police department's not telling me anything. They're not, they're not, so therefore they're not doing anything. And that's really the furthest thing from the truth. We, we, do, we do investigate everything that, um, that we're called to investigate. And that sometimes there are details in that case that we couldn't release to you as a victim because that's what's going to lead us to potentially finding the suspect in it. Um, so certain information that leads me to a question that that um, has come up now and then with especially with missing persons cases who actually owns that case is it the is it the um, the the law enforcement agency that's involved Um, I think the misconception is some families feel that because it's their loved one who's missing, that they own that case, that they are entitled to everything that you have in your case files or, or a missing persons organization may have in their case files. What, what is the reality of that situation? Uh, it, it, it is, um, and everybody's perception of it is, is quite different. But the first thing I want to say in, in reference to missing persons is, there's an old myth out there that, um, you know, so-and-so is missing, but the police won't take a report. You know, they have to be missing more than 24 hours, more than 72 hours. There is no timeline. If somebody goes right. missing at this moment, we can take that report at this moment. And we're going to begin investigating it. Um, w- when when families come to us with, you know, with a lot of times with with details they've waited a little bit because 
they felt like, well, the police weren't going to take the report, so I'll wait until they're missing two or three days. That's hampered it a little bit because the quicker we can get involved in it, the quicker we can help with it. And that's so true, particularly with children, with elderly, who, who I would consider vulnerable people. Um, vulnerable from the standpoint of either just they're young and, and, and they're not well-versed in, in, in what to do to try and get help for themselves, or they're elderly and potentially have memory issues or, or uh, cognitive issues that um, we need to get involved right away to try and, to try and find them. And, and, of course, everything changes the dynamics of it based on the time of year, the weather, the conditions that are around, there's so many factors that involve it. But it it begins with a simple call to the police and an officer coming and taking a report. That officer is then going to collect as much details as possible, Fo photographs of the victim, details about the victim, details about um, general things that the victim would normally do or, or may have been doing at the time, um, friends, workers, co-workers, what type of job they have, where they play if it's a child, what their routine is if it's, a, if it's an adult, possibly a vulnerable adult. And, and from there, it, it's gonna, the investigation is going to start with that officer. It's going to involve some type of an investigative component, um, usually a detective. Um, there will always be a supervisor over that case that that's reviewing what the officer has done what the detective has done and, and I think Donna and I had this conversation um, when, when we were at the Q conference up in Wilmington and and I always stress to to victims when they feel like they're they're not getting responses from the police or, or um, everybody the bottom line is everybody has a boss that police officer has a boss, that detective has a boss, their boss has a boss, their boss has a boss. It keeps going up the line until you get to a, 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 um, a police commissioner, a police chief, a city manager, a town manager, a county manager, um, something of that nature. Everybody is accountable to someone, and, and we have a job to do, and, and, and the victim and the victim's family deserves every aspect that we can put into it to, to try and to try and help find them. Mm -hmm. But during the investigative process, Peter, is it uh, is it handed off to different um, facets of of the the department, or does that initial officer stay with that case throughout the whole the whole process? Generally, the initial officer, and I'm speaking the patrol officer in the field, he yeah. or she, within within a short period of time of taking the report and doing the initial groundwork to check the areas around, you know, around where the, you know, in, in a missing persons case where they went missing from and so forth, it's going to turn over, <coughs> excuse me, to to a detective. And, and that investigator, he or she, is then going to begin a more in-depth investigation into it, allowing the officer to go back to the patrol duties that they have with, with the 
with the calls that continue to come in and, and the additional families and victims that, that, you know, are requesting assistance on things. And then that detective stays with it. But many times, too, you have other people, other detectives that may be assigned to a particular case. And are families kept abreast of that always if it changes hands? Usually they're kept abreast of who the, we call it or refer to it as a case agent, the assigned detective to, to the case. That's usually who they um, have the majority of their contact with. There may be several other components that are working along with that assigned detective. You may have crime scene personnel um, reconstructing a scene or doing some photography work, doing some um, some laboratory work. You may have state lab investigators or private lab investigators and technicians who are doing DNA work and, and serology work and other forensic work, everything from, you know, firearms to trace to tool marks to footwear impressions, tire wear impressions, fingerprints. There are so many specific specialized disciplines within law enforcement, and every one of them at, at one point or another could potentially have a component in, in, in any investigation. Right, but I think families feel um, most comforted or when they have a go-to person, and that would be the, the main detective assigned to the case. Is that right? That's correct. It would be the, the assigned investigator, assigned detective to the case. Some of the smaller departments that don't have detectives may have a, a, a police officer that works in an, in an investigative capacity, so it may be that person. Um, you know, and, and they generally have a pretty up-to-date knowledge of, of what's being done and, and, um, and, and what things that we're looking to do and, you know, or maybe waiting on results or something from, um, from a test or from a lab or from something. Right. What's your, just so that uh, people are familiar there, what is, your, what is the structure with regard to um, victim advocates there in um, Horry County, and can families are they assigned a victim advocate that is affiliated with with the police department or the sheriff's department or whatever? Yes, we we have we have victims advocates that are that are um, full time employees. They're generally civilian or or um, um, or law enforcement personnel, and their sole purpose is to um, assist the families with uh, anything that they may need, anything from temporary housing to, to meals to support groups to um, filling in the blanks in, in information that the, you know, that the family is looking to get or, or um, um, you know, just to, to, to be there, um, at, you know, as that, additional point of contact for the family, uh, you know, or for the victim to, to reach out to. Maybe it's just something as simple as talking to them and being able to explain their feelings and, and so forth and, you know, and have somebody that is willing to listen to them and, and pass that information along and help it. The, the Victims Advocate Program is, 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 is an outstanding program um, because it keeps the, the families involved in 
all the different aspects, what, what may be going on in court, what may be going on in the investigative side of it. So they are, um, they are a true blessing to, to the officers and to the detectives who are working cases by helping you know, with, with those families. Right. I can't say enough for that program either because I've also volunteered here in Connecticut for, for that role. Um, it just wanted to know that when, when, when a, a violent crime happens and thinking back and you're in that acute phase and you just, you, you want information, is there a particular protocol where the, 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 the family member, okay, do I call this detective? Or I need I need information about the legal process. So I'm going to call the prosecutor, or I'm going to call the victim advocate. And none of them can necessarily share all the information that they have, like you said. But what what would you tell a, a family that's listening, that's sort of in that situation? We've got these different characters in within the mix, and. Do you have to go through a series of channels in order to do you always call this one person and they will find out the information for you? Because I know that prosecutors sometimes don't take kindly to having a million phone calls and they don't return calls or they can't return calls, and then that causes animosity and all of that kind of thing. It, it, it certainly does, and it, it's not from – uh, a standpoint of they don't want to return the phone call or or whatever. I would say to any victim's family, the, the first two measures that you take, obviously the first one is to speak to that assigned officer or detective. Um, see what information they can provide. See if they can answer your questions. If they can't, Ask them whatever what other avenues you have to to be able to speak to someone to try and get help with different situations. It may be that victim's advocate. Um, it may be it may be somebody from the coroner's office if the person is is if the victim is deceased. It may be someone from the prosecutor's office or the solicitor's office if the, if there's an arrest made. Um, so that there is. There is always other components. It's not just one person doing in, doing the investigation. There, there, it's it's a it's truly a team effort. And sometimes victims' families may not feel like they're getting the the their answers supplied by the detective, and he or she may not have all the answers to give them. But hopefully, they can point them in the right place. Um, like I said. The, the next step from there would be to that person's supervisor um, and to try and get, you know, additional information. There's, a, there's always somebody there that should be able to um, lend an ear and, and lend a hand and, and answer some questions to the best we can without compromising any investigative actions we may have going on at the time. Right. Well, I think that's good advice to, to find out what the resources are because many people do not know. And they're at the most vulnerable times in their lives, as you said, you know. But to, to kind of segue back into some of these uh, issues with, with the forensics and, and the case management, let's talk about some of the challenges. We Just to let you know, I believe we have about 25 minutes 
left to our show just to, to let you know. So um, what what other information would be important for you to relate to us to get a realistic picture about what's going on with all of these various um, entities with, within your case and what, what are realistic expectations? Well, I, I think... I think we need to discuss what I refer to as the CSI effect. Um, Television has, you know, if you go back to, I'm going to date myself here, but if you go back to when I was a child, you know, your shows on TV were, you know, Adam 12. Adam 12. uh, (laughs) um, uh, You know, Joe Friday and, you know, and, and all of these things. You know, now now we've got more of what people believe is reality TV. There are so many reality shows out there, and then they turn on um, CSI New York, CSI Las Vegas, CSI Miami, and they make it look so great. You know, you, you in those TV shows, you've you've got a character actor who is portraying the role of a, of a of a investigator, and they respond to the initial call, they collect the evidence, they process the evidence, they interview victims and families and suspects, they, you know, they do all of these things, they process DNA samples, and, and if you take the commercials out, that, that one hour show is 40 minutes. They solve every crime in 40 minutes. If we could do that, we'd be superheroes. Um, the reality is, it's not fancy clothes, it's not fancy cars and helicopters and all of these other things. I work in a rough duty uniform. You you've Donna, you've seen me when, when I did presentations. I, right. I come the way I work. That's you know, that's what people are gonna see when I show up at their house. Um I come in a rough duty uniform uh, um and and with the expectations I'm gonna get dirty, I'm gonna get sweaty, I'm gonna get muddy, it's gonna be a long process. And nothing, by God, nothing is going to be done in 40 minutes. Um, a simple processing of a scene could take hours or days in, in, in some instances. It could be something as simple as, you know, collecting a, a, a blood swab to, to process for DNA, and that could take a few moments. But I've been at scenes for hours. I've been at scenes for days, and and... and I've been at scenes for for longer. It all depends on what the magnitude of the case is and what you have the process. And the reality is that while I'm doing that, an investigator is out asking questions, a police officer is out checking surroundings and so forth. There may be there may be two or three people involved in it. There may be a hundred people involved in it. We may have volunteers out searching. Um, and then that simple DNA swab that I collect at the scene. Now, mind you, in South Carolina, we are, we meaning Horry County Police, we are a minimum of two and a half hours away from the state lab, which is in Columbia. And that's pretty much customary in a lot of states. Um, so that one swab of blood or that one um, piece of evidence that that I collect that may hold the smoking gun for DNA for us. Even if I collected it, got in my in my car, lights and sirens, drove to Columbia, which maybe would make it two hours and fifteen minutes instead of two hours and thirty minutes. Got to the lab, 
had the, the, the people at intake process that swab to, for them to accept it because everything has to be done in a chain of custody so that we do not physically lose any piece of evidence in court. Then it goes from, from their intake to, to, the, to the analyst who, who is going to be assigned that case. Even if that analyst at that point could put that swab into a machine to, to, to get the DNA coding index from it, at, at best, you're looking at a minimum of 24 hours to get an answer on a, on a DNA standard. Reality is that I'm not going to collect that swab and, and jump in my car and run to Columbia because there's so many other things that have to be done. So that evidence is going to be collected today. It, it may not get to the lab until tomorrow in a, in a vital case. Um, and then depending upon picture statewide, how many important cases, how many major cases are, are, are impacting at that moment, what's in the DNA database that's being processed at the time, when can that when can that swab get into a machine? When can a report be generated? Um, some right. cases. Some Is it cases, first come yeah. first serve, Peter, in terms of um, the backlog, or who decides who is the most important cases, or does yours go before? Is it whoever's the most high profile? Does politics enter into it? How does that part of it work? I, I think. Every one of them really plays a part in it, but the, the, the truth that I see is that it's based on the severity of the crime. It's based on what has happened. If, if your car is broken into and I collect a, a, a DNA swab from the door where the suspect got it, and I get that swab up to the lab, but there's a homicide that happened or a missing person that happened, uh, obviously, it's going to go based on the severity of the crime. They're going to process um, evidence based on the immediate need to get answers. Um, that breaking into a car where you know your your two dollars and change was taken from the cup holder, that swab could potentially sit in a lab for for six months to a year before it would ever really hit. A desk because it's considered such a a low volume crime where mm -hmm. um, where a violent crime, a sexual assault, a missing person, a, an armed robbery, a a a burglary to a residence or to a to a building, you know where there's um, some damage and 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 a lot of financial loss, it, it's gonna it's gonna go pretty much in a severity order. Um, I understand. Mm -hmm. the, Makes the sense lab, to me. A lot of the state labs are using contract labs to handle some of the, I'll call them property crimes type of uh, of uh, scenarios, um, leaving the state lab to handle the more violent crimes type of scenarios. So that's created quite a bit of help for us. I mean, I, I've had cases that sat in the state lab for a year waiting to be investigated. I've had cases that I've dropped off at, at evidence intake and they were brought up immediately and began. And it's all based on 
the severity of the case, a, a potential timeline on on the victim, you know, and 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 so so forth. Well, when you first meet a family and say a, a violent event has happened, and knowing the realities of how long it takes to get all this done in the processing, how do you how do you broach that with them? Because not only do they have maybe someone who they've lost in homicide, but then you're coming to them and saying, well, we know that you you saw CSI last night and they, they got this done in a day, but realistically, we're, we're probably not going to get all these pieces together for, I mean, is there a way to kind of break that to them sensitively? There is. I mean, obviously, you know, they've faced some dynamic trauma in their life and and they want answers and and believe me nothing would make me happier than to be able to give them an answer at that very moment but the truth is the more upfront and honest we are as law enforcement with you know with civilians with victims with families the more informed we keep them, the better they understand um, what it actually entails or what it takes to 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 um, to get evidence processed and and looked at and results fed back. And sometimes things that they think are and when I say they, meaning the the victim's family, sometimes the the things that the victim's family think are, are you know are or a smoking gun or a huge lead are really not things that we look at from the same, you know, through the same magnifying glass. We may look at it and say it's good information, but it really has no bearing on, on the way we see things are turning. So keeping them informed, uh, um, but not divulging all of the details, which could obviously compromise the investigation is is actually a delicate process. We we you know we want to keep them in the know about what we're doing and how we're doing it, but at the same time we don't want to give away things that only only the suspect or only the killer may know. Those are details that if they were to to um, present themselves somewhere down the line, we know we're getting closer to who our suspect or who our killer is. Right, and one one thing I just wanted to interject here and wondered if you agree with it, one of the benefits of if you have a missing person and in working with the Q Center is that, you know, families feel so helpless and they want to do something, and part of the protocol is, you know, we don't, we don't want families to, you know, inadvertently destroy evidence or, in, quote-unquote, interfere with the process, even though they're very well-intentioned, but we're able to sort of give them certain types of, of duties and information that might be helpful to kind of keep them engaged and proactively busy, but yet not interfere with the investigatory process. And do you, do you see the value in that where um, we, we kind of help the, the families with regard to that, and, and then that leads you to do the um, down and dirty kind of, of um, investigatory stuff, um, whereas the Q has its role as well? 
I, I do. I do believe that wholeheartedly. Um, first, let me say, I, I, I did not become aware of Q. Um, and for those listeners out there, Q is um, Community United Effort. It's a volunteer organization, um, nonprofit that comes in and helps families of, of missing persons. Um, uh, Monica Kaysen, um is based out of Wilmington, but they've got networks all around the country, and they are an absolute blessing for me on a law enforcement side because it's not easy for me when we have somebody missing to be able to to pull police officers off the street or rally people in um, to to get searchers out there to 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 look in the woods or look in the neighborhood or or cover roadways or whatever um, because we're taking we're taking that law enforcement aspect away from the rest of the community to do a search and. And the law enforcement aspect may not have all of the tools and the fundamentals about searching that the people from Q have. Um, Q is they're they're well trained. Um, they come in with with four wheelers, people on the ground, um, uh, cadaver dogs, um, scent dogs, boats. You name it. They'll horseback riders. They they produce. An, an immense amount of people for us in a short period of time, and we've solved so many cases with their help. I, I mean, I can't speak more highly about them. I, I think they are just a phenomenal organization. Um, that being said, um, th there are so many things that, that they bring to us that help us quite a bit. You know, I mean, we've we cover in in South Carolina here. My jurisdiction covers everything from remote, heavily wooded areas to million-dollar homes along the beaches. And um, they've been Q has been able to provide us with the equipment and the people to to search some of these cases. As you mentioned earlier, um, the Alice Donovan case. When I first came on with the Horry County Police Department. The Alice Donovan case had happened about two years prior to me coming here, where she had been abducted at a local Walmart and um, um, driven around for several days, and she was eventually um, um, uh, murdered. Uh, and it wasn't until 2009, some eight, almost nine years later, that we recovered her remains, and, and, and that was solely based on the help of Q. Um, they were just phenomenal in what they did with us. Well, I, we're so glad to hear you say that, that, of course, D Delilah and I are biased as coordinators. <laughs> but it <laughs> is true. So everyone listening within the sound of my voice, um, you just you, you just have to get involved with them. It's all there is to it. If you, if you care about homicide, if you care about missing persons, um, they are they are the go-to organization, I, I believe. And thank you. Thank you for saying that. We couldn't have had a better commercial. <laughs> but it, it, it is true. And as we speak, I believe Monica is out there and, and um, searching on a case, I believe. So So kudos to you, Monica, and all of those good Good people that are out there helping you in um, in, in 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 another state, helping um, helping families, you know. But um, so uh, again, we we do have the value, and 
I just want law enforcement listening that, oh, just because it's a nonprofit or a volunteer organization does not mean they are not experienced, does not mean they do not know what they're doing. Q is highly credible, highly trained. So please, please, please give them a chance, uh, especially people here in Connecticut. There, there's not that many uh, um, police organizations that have uh, been receptive, and you just, you know, maybe I'll give them uh, Peter's number. <laughs> but anyway. uh, Donna, I did want to yes. mention you touched okay. on something a minute ago about helping families out, and you were saying how um, tragedies happen and then, um, you know, what, what can people do to, to help us. And I'll put it yes, in, in as simple terms as this. You're, you know, you go out to work all day or you're out shopping or whatever. You come home and you realize your home has been broken into. Your first reaction is to, is to run inside and see what's occurred. You know, maybe you realize a TV is missing or maybe a jewelry box has been opened or, or you know, things have been touched in the house. Instinctively, our first reaction is to go over and pick something up and say, "Oh, look at they got all they got my good watch, they got my rings they oh look at they took the t v they disconnected it, and we begin touching things, and what we've done is contaminated the chance of of the the officer who's going to respond from being able to collect a fingerprint or being able to collect a DNA swab from something um and I and I know we all want to you know you see something happen you want to jump right in and 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 find out what happened and the the truth is the best thing to do is not is to minimize what you touch minimize what you do give the police the best opportunity to be able to collect evidence you know if if um, if somebody goes missing um, we may be using bloodhound dogs to track a scent. So if you pick up their pocketbook or, or their phone or, the, or an article of clothing or something, you might have just cross-contaminated that scent that, that, the, that the tracking dog is not going to be able to find them um, or, or lessen the chances of it. So I, I, the absolute best thing to do is, is step back Make that call to 911 and give the officers responding the best possible chance of picking up uh, on on the trail of evidence right from the start and, and to be able to move forward with it. I've had so many times I've had to tell people that we weren't able to you know we weren't able to develop a fingerprint, we weren't able to develop a DNA profile simply because there's too many mixtures involved in it and, and there's not enough to determine whose DNA it is or whose fingerprint it is. So is that benchmark, if you come to your door and your door is ajar and you know that you locked it, that's where you stop and you say, or, you know, you, you shouldn't enter whatsoever. Is that what you're saying? It, yes, even from a safety standpoint, if you know you you locked your door and you come home and that door is open, how do you know that a, that that offender is not still in your house or in your your business or or, or wherever it may be? Mm-hmm. The best thing to do is back up, dial nine one one. You know, my door is open. I think somebody's in my house. That's going to get the quickest response, and it's going to give that officer 
or the or the responding officers the best opportunity to collect some type of physical evidence, whether it be a fingerprint, a footwear impression, a tire wear impression, um, a tool mark from where a door was pried open, a a smudge or or um, some type of a, a of a collection point for DNA. Right. Um, would you would you say that that may be the biggest one of the biggest barriers to solving a case in that the scenes have been contaminated or just in general what uh, we have about four minutes here what is uh, what are the what are the biggest barriers to to solving a case other you know lack of evidence yes but in terms of what you deal with on a day to day basis to clear well, cases. Um, Social media has 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 presented a whole new aspect of of help and problems. Obviously, social media, Facebook, Instagram, you know, uh, the the web, all of these things um, are are helpful tools for us. Um, you know, somebody who goes missing, you know, we have the ability possibly to track their phone or track a vehicle if it, if it has some type of a a GPS system in it. Um, the more, sometimes those those avenues for putting information out there hurts us because the the victim's family begins to post details that can hinder our investigation and and you know kind of run us into brick walls. Um, there's a time and a place for it. The you know let the you know, if 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 you've got a victim, if you know if you're a, a victim or, or a family of a victim, speak with the law enforcement officers before things start being posted on social media. Let the officers help you in telling you what should go out and what shouldn't go out. Um, that's going to be a key point in, in in helping us to quickly, um, you know, come to some conclusion on that case. Okay. Yeah, very very good advice. I know it it can be very challenging and um I would I would just say in the limited time that we had left two things. If you 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 have an open invitation to come back perhaps with a colleague or if you'd like to come and present a case, a cold case and maybe getting it out on the airwaves, we we would love to to help you. So there's my invitation for that. And we are going to go to the Connecticut State Police Museum in the future when we can we can schedule that in. But I wanted to know um, what um, if if people want to contact you, uh, are you amenable to, to to that? And what would be that contact information? I am. The best way to reach me would probably be by email, and okay. it is my last my last name and first initial. So it's C E S. T A R E P at Ori County H O R R Y County dot org O R G. County dot org. Okay. That's my email and, and you know I'm I'm always available to, to try and assist um uh somebody, you know, who's who's got a got a situation or, or just doesn't understand something that maybe I can explain better for them. Well, I, I think that's great, and you are such a public servant, and it's a pleasure to 
to know you and to have met you, and we hope we can we can keep this collaboration going. Do you have any parting thoughts that you'd like to convey as parting messages, and until we uh, until we perhaps do this again in the future? I I would love to be able to come back on again uh, anytime, and I okay. would just like to to all of those um, families out there, who, you know, who have suffered some type of of tragedy or loss. My 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 sincere thoughts and prayers go out to you. And and again, if there's anything I can do to help you, please don't hesitate to contact me. Yes, absolutely. And I think the, the the advice you you've given is very uh practical advice and something every uh, so many listeners can um can make use of. And uh so Delilah, with that, do you have some parting thoughts before we sign off? I certainly do. I, I think in in this tumultuous time where police officers out there are getting a bad rap. Um, you know, we all know yeah. there's there are rogue cops out there, but I I just have to say that Peter is the shining example of what every officer should um, want to be. Um, thank you so much, Peter, uh, well, for all well, that you, you do. Thank you yeah. so much, and and you're right. Law enforcement is no different than any other, you know, job or profession. There is always going to be a bad element there, and and we do our best at trying to weed those out. But the majority of the officers out there, the 99.9% of them, are there for the right reasons. It's a calling. It's a job that they want to do, and and they want to do to the best of their abilities. And, and, uh, you know, I, I for one, my son is a police officer here with me in the county. I couldn't be more proud of him. I always feared him falling it, you know, f- following in my footsteps. But the, you know, the type of person the man he's turned out to be is, is I, I am just elated at at how good he is. Well, that that's that's wonderful, and and uh, we're, we're we're so proud to have you. So thank you for serving um, New York and South Carolina so well. And we will be in touch. I will email you this link if you're interested in passing it along, Peter. And we'll, we'll stay in touch, okay? Uh, that'd be great. Thank you so Very much, Donna. Good. Thank you, Delilah. It Thank has been you. an absolute Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you as well. So with that, we will sign off for today's Shattered Lives edition. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Delilah. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.